You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, welcome everyone to this episode, and our topic today is the Bible and the, quote, problem of history, end quote. Yeah. What's That's the, our topic, man, and it's a pretty cool topic. I think so. And it, it, it is a bit of a heavy topic. There's a lot of concepts that might be new for people. And just a reminder, if, if you're looking for some people to interact with about this, ask questions, have more conversation, we have this Slack group. Um, so you can go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, learn more about it. But it can be helpful to not have to look over your shoulder at the coffee shop and see if you're going to be accused of being a heretic <laughs> for having these conversations. It's a group of yeah. people who are already asking these questions. Supportive. You know, right. and Jared and I, we we had experiences in seminary where after classes you can go out and hang out with people, maybe go to a pub or something, and and talk about this stuff. And that's that's sometimes you have topics where you just need to go back and forth a little bit. And I think this is one of them because this really hits at the heart of what causes a little bit of distress sometimes for people, or just like I don't really know what to do with this anymore. And that is the quote problem of. History. So, yeah, what do, let's yeah. start with what do we mean by the problem of history? What Why do we, is this What do we mean, Jared, by that? Well, it's, <laughs> it's recognizing in our Bible, which I think a lot of listeners is it's why they listen. It's why we go through these faith shifts, is we start to notice things in our Bible that aren't passing the mustard of historical research, like what the historians say uh-huh. about events that happened yeah. aren't lining up with our Bible. Right. And and sometimes just – it's even simpler than that. It's just paying attention and seeing how – you know, again, there are, we always talk about this. There are four Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus differently. You don't have to be a scholar to see that. You just read it and say, right. how come it says this in Matthew and this in Luke and John doesn't even care? You know, so why does that happen? Even just on the level of reading the Bible like a normal person, you're going to be confronted with the problem of history in the Bible. And the Old Testament version of that, of course, is the two histories of Israel. The first one is basically in the books of Samuel and Kings, and the other one is in the books of uh, First and Second Chronicles. And if, you get, if you're just a little bit closer of a reader... We get it from the very beginning with the two creation accounts. Yeah. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, and then 2 to 3, we have these. If we're paying attention, we can see these. Right. And you see the two stories of creation. And, you know, assuming that those are even historical, then you have that problem like, well, how did it happen? But there you even have the added problem, you know, that people in, in our time are probably a little more conscious of than maybe from centuries past. But, you know, is this. Really? Six days? Or a garden with two magic trees in the middle and then a snake that talks? So what do we do with history? So it raises the issues of things like myth, which we may or not. So the the historical problem is our Bible bumps up against a few things, is what I'm hearing say. It bumps up against our close reading, meaning our own logic says if Luke has Jesus giving the same sermon on a plane and Matthew has it on a mount – well, they couldn't have both been true. Yeah. So we, we're bumping up against our own logic. We're also bumping up against science, yeah. and we're bumping up against archaeology. Yeah, and that's what that's what we're talking about. Uh, but even if you know Luke and Matthew's sermons of Jesus, e- even if they could be both historically true, it's the very fact that we're asking the question. 
right? It's it's our sensibilities make us ask those kinds of questions. So, I mean, the, another way of putting it is that the Bible doesn't make it easy for us when it comes to, oh, this is history, or what is history? You know, it it asks a lot of us. And again, for some people, this isn't a problem, but for many others, it's like, this is what makes you stop in your tracks. Things like miracles, mm-hmm. you know, not to say that miracles can't happen, but we ask the question, we talk about it. People rise from the dead. This is not a common experience that we have. So there, on different levels, Jared, there is a problem of history just from reading the Bible sort of on our own without any supervision. It just sort of happens. Right. Right. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, let's talk about why this is a problem, because you were hinting at it there for a minute about the, well, I, what, what I want to use is the word historical consciousness. It's, ahead, it's understanding there was a world six to 700 years ago and before, mm-hmm. and then there is a world six or 700 years ago and after. And there's this really significant dividing port that scholars and theologians talk about in the modern period that makes this more of a problem. If we would have asked uh, a medieval monk how they handle the historical problem of the Bible, they would likely have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So what is it that led it to being a problem in the first place? Because it is a problem for us right. in a way that it was not a problem for the ancients. They just yeah. didn't, they didn't think about it. We don't see in our Bible people wrestling with the historical problem. We don't see theologians for hundreds of years or anyone really for hundreds of years wrestling with this, well, wait a minute, the text says this, what do we do with the historical account? Is this historically accurate, and why does that matter? Mm -hmm. These are very modern questions. Right, right. And, you know, I think the last thing we want to do is present a simplistic picture, even if we want to present a simple picture, not simplistic. So, you know, even, even that question, Jared, like where is that dividing line? When did things sort of begin and get rolling? That's not an easy question to answer in and of itself, but we do have something that people have heard of, which is the Renaissance, and this movement uh, of back to the sources. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't just rely on the way things are. Go back and dig into the past to really find out where things began and and therefore what things mean. Right. Right. Well, and – all studies during before the Renaissance, we would have we maybe again we don't want to be simplistic, but we call it the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And during that time, all the authority for what's true is really an ecclesial. It's a church authority. the 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 Pope is really determining what's true, and that comes through received tradition. Mm-hmm. So everything's received tradition. So that's why I just say that because we we might think, well, of course you go back to the sources. But we have several hundred years before the Renaissance 
where people aren't going back to the sources. Mm-hmm. They're saying, no, 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 we don't need to go back to the sources. Why would you go back to the sources when we've built on the sources in this authoritative way? And that's called tradition. Right, right. And tradition is the truth. Yeah. And it's only when people started questioning those traditions and said, wait a minute. You know, I think of Erasmus, who tried to be a good Catholic. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Martin Luther. They try to be good Catholics, and it doesn't always turn out well for them. Yeah. But he says, like, wait a minute. What what if the tradition got it wrong? Like, yeah. I'd like to— About the Bible itself. Right. Well, right. And, and also during this time period, we can't separate that from the fact that we were just now uh, l- finding the original sources. Mm-hmm. So people were finding mm-hmm. ancient Greek manuscripts, mm-hmm. and they were saying, oh, yeah, I guess there's sort of light bulbs going off. Like, right. oh, I guess there were sources behind all this tradition. Yeah. What do they actually say? And how far back do they go, and what's the original, and, and questions like that. So right. that's not a question that would have bothered someone in the 7th century. Right. Right. But th- these are things that just happened. Why did they happen? Great question. People write a lot of books about that. We can't answer that. All we know is that it did, right? And this this n- – desire to even simple things well again simple from maybe our point of view but like you really ought to learn greek and hebrew right that wasn't invented during the renaissance period but it sort of got some legs there and it and it lasted it kept going and and that's very much a part of our consciousness now when you go to seminary and you're usually expected to pick up some greek and hebrew because mm-hmm. it's important to understand quote originals even though that's a complicated thing, what are originals? But leaving that to the side for a second, you know, you you have that consciousness of history that is beginning to invade – is that the right word, Jared? Invade matters of Christian life and faith. Right, right. You know, and, and by invading his... is a negative way of putting it. it it's, not a, it's not a bad thing, but it's just happened. Right. At first, maybe it wasn't invasive until the implications started to come out. Yeah. Maybe then it felt like an invasion. But yeah. I just want to back up because the word historical consciousness can be very abstract. So, again, not to be – this probably this is probably simplistic, but it's – people started around – we're talking about the 1500s, yeah. the 1600s, the 1700s. People started asking the question, well, what really happened? Mm-hmm. And when Pemlin said, well, why would you want to know that? They said, just because. Yeah. Because we want to know what really happened. That's a historical consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't – those weren't sustained questions before that. Yeah, it, that question has its own value. Yeah, in like, and of itself. In and of itself. Like, right. And you know, I, I think of myself. I have historical curiosity. Like why do you, di- why do you study this stuff and dig into it? I just am interested. I just – I just want to know what happened, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a question that is fueled not by the medieval period, not by the biblical period. It's fueled by events and movements and philosophies of the past few hundred years. And, and living in the modern world, it's very, very hard to escape that. I mean, just to jump ahead a little bit, even if you're really conservative and you think everything in the Bible happens exactly the way it says it happened— you're still historically conscious because you're talking about it. Right. Right? You're defending it, and you have arguments for it. See, mm-hmm. this is not like a liberal conservative kind of thing. It's just everyone has this historical consciousness, and the Bible itself raises certain questions that if you have a historical consciousness the way we do, we're going to say, wait a minute, there are four Gospels that don't agree. Right. And there are conservative ways of handling that. Right. But noticing it is a uniquely modern 
thing to do. And feeling the need to handle it. Right. Right? I mean, so so there's, there's not really a good guy, bad guy here. That's right. not the point right. of this. The point of this is just that there, there is a historical problem for us as readers with respect to the Bible mm-hmm. that has biblical roots in a sense, but the matters have gotten a lot more complicated and a lot more just just baked into the whole idea of Bible, the historical consciousness. And that really, you know, Jared, that blossomed then, you know, the Reformation was, it didn't help, right? The Reformation didn't help because when you have, again, not to be, I, I keep saying this, but we're really conscious of not being simplistic, but with with the Reformation, the Bible was elevated to a particular kind of authority that many people think wasn't really at work before the time of people like Martin Luther and some precursors and then John Calvin, those are the two big names. So there was a shift, so to speak, in what you expect from the Bible. If the authority by which you live your life is no longer, let's say, the church authority of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's the Bible alone, well, you need really clear information from the Bible, and you can't have it messing around with history. You need to be able to find a way to reconcile Gospels or reconcile the histories of Israel in the Old Testament. You know, not that they were like modern people necessarily. This is really a bridge almost from medieval to modern, the influence of the Reformation. Right. It elevates the Bible to a status that eventually, again, this is a connection people make, and it's really important, but there are a lot of nuances we're not getting into. But the connection between, you know, the the Renaissance and then – the the Reformation period, and then what eventually happens in Europe where the Bible becomes an object of historical study. When in the Reformation, when you have people like Martin Luther saying, hey, Catholic Church, you can't tell me what to do. I don't recognize your spiritual authority. I'm just going to read the Bible and get my authority from that. That sounds great. The next step is, well, we don't recognize the spiritual authority of the Bible either, because have you read it? Look at all this stuff that happens. You know, it's a weird book. It's contradictory. Historically, it makes no sense, this and the other thing. And that gave rise to the study of the Bible in, you know, modern universities, all around this notion of a historical consciousness. You know, the criticisms about the Bible were like, this couldn't have happened. For whatever reason, they're just saying X, Y, and Z could not have happened. It makes no sense. That rises from a historical consciousness. Well, and the way I would say it maybe is during this Reformation time where we're starting to ask questions of of history on its own terms, I feel like there was an assumed authority within the Bible for that. There was an assumption that once we started asking these questions, the Bible fits squarely within what we would say is history. What the Bible says happened is what happened. Then we started doing things like science. Mm. And so we started creating these processes whereby we can – Say, well, when we, when we filter this through these sets of questions and create hypotheses and all of that, we're coming out with some conclusions that actually aren't lining up with the Bible. Yikes. And then we had this 
split between people who this is where we start to think of, well, are we going to follow the scientific process? Are we going to continue to assume that the Bible Mm -hmm. just is historically accurate and everything else has to flow from that? And that's when we get, you know, what you're talking about, I would call or people call the critical study of the Bible. Right. Where we're taking these critical tools that we're learning from historians and scientists, and now we're starting to apply them yeah. to the Bible. And critical, I mean, that gets a bad rap, but really all critical means is digging into the past to the original context, rather than assuming that your own context is normative, mm-hmm. right? So trying to dig into the past, and that's exactly what biblical scholars did, and it was aided by things like well, for example, just a bunch of Germans sitting around with nothing better to do, just really noticing things. I mean, legitimately noticing that there are anachronisms in the Bible. There are things that must have come from a later point in time. They could not have been written like by a Moses, for example. Moses probably didn't write about his own death. That's an anachronism. Somebody else had to have done that. Um, there are lists of these sorts of things. But that's that's paying attention to the historical quality and raising to a certain level of prominence some of these historical problems. But, you know, maybe even more so is the study of archaeology. It really began in the 19th century. That's when the, quote, science of biblical archaeology, doing it systematically, not just raiding tombs, but actually mapping out what you're digging and where you're digging and and what you're finding and where deep down you're finding it so you can date things. It's it's all very interesting and fascinating. But it's archaeology that unearthed things like creation stories from the ancient Assyrians or Babylonians or, you know, a bunch of other people, Egyptians, that look an awful lot like the biblical creation stories. They're not the same, but man, oh man, they're breathing the same air. And that raises questions, it has raised questions about, well, we don't think these other things are historical. On what basis do we think now the Bible is historical, since they share certain kinds of worldviews? And that's not a small thing. And and throw it, I mean, Jared, you mentioned science, but it's it's the rising, you know, of of geology in the 18th century that led people to say, you know. The Earth's not a few thousand years old, and you know theories began, and they had different opinions, and now we're up to what what four point five billion or something like that, whatever. But you know it's it's very very old, and in fact, you really can't defend a global flood geologically. I know there are some who think they can, but no geologist I think that that works outside of a very conservative Christian mindset would ever conclude you have a global flood and geological evidence for it so but the point is that it's people are debating it right because there's a science of geology that raises the question and the very presence of a debate makes the point we're trying to make there's a historical consciousness and you know, then Darwin shows up in the 19th century, and you know, working off the uh, off of what other people uh, had had already started, and he's got this theory of common descent and you know biological evolution, and and there you have it. So, those all those things sort of come together, like the science angle and the archaeological angle. They all come together to raise to yet another level of of almost urgency for people. I wouldn't say almost. It was urgency for mm-hmm. many people. 
the problem of history. Like, to what extent is the Bible historical? How do we know? What does it matter? The Bible has its own problems just reading it on a surface level. But now, when people start digging literally and also figuratively into the past, it raises more questions than it answers. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And I just want to make it clear that one of the reasons this is so difficult is because this isn't a problem inherent in the Bible. Right. So we started by saying, well, if we read the Bible closely, but what we have to make sure we mention is when we say that, we're saying we, we. in the last 300 years. With when the historical we read consciousness. The that Bible, have, right? that's yeah. a problem. Right. For the original readers of that Bible, this, mm-hmm. what we're talking about, this wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really important to recognize because it. They weren't dumb. That, yeah, right. It's, it's, a to, it's just, right. I mean, we would be no different, Jared and I, if we were living in this. We'd probably be killed or something for heresy. <laughs> but anyway, you know, the thing is, it, it's, it's not a matter of smart or dumb. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of just the historical context right. of the reader, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just, all we're, we're just saying, 
this is the reality that we deal with, right. and this is why people talk about it. Well, I think it also limits, though, what we can expect from our Bible, which I think is really important. It's 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 highlights what we talk about on a Sunday morning anytime when the pastor says, you know, what do we do with social media today, and how much should we be on our phones? And we go back to the Bible as though the Bible is going to tell us that. Right. This is like a grander version of that, where mm-hmm. it's we, we can't go to the Bible to solve the historical problem because it wasn't a problem for the people who wrote the right. Bible. And what makes it extra tricky is that along with that, the Bible does have a historical impulse. Right. It is telling a historical narrative. Yes. And I don't deny no one I think no one can really deny that. It's you, you've got a story of Israel mm-hmm. that has movement and direction over time, and the same thing with the rise of the church in the New Testament. That's what makes it so difficult. There is a historical impulse, mm-hmm. but not written by people with the historical consciousness that we have today. That's what, if, if the Bible said, okay, this isn't history, go read it and have fun, we wouldn't be talking about this. Right. Right? But there is a historical assumption even though you have contradictory historical stories, that doesn't matter. Right. You can interpret history differently. Different people can interpret that history differently. But the very again, you have these historical moments. Uh, not even moments. You have the, you know the, the the structure of the Bible is so historical, you can't escape that. But the philosophy behind it, if that's the right word, Jared, is different today than it was back then. Well, I'm going to try to, I'll say it this way. You can tell me if I'm completely off because it just, I'm processing out loud here. But I think the difference is it's important for us as modern people to parse out the difference between history and theology, between past and present. Both of those distinctions were not important distinctions to make in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. That wasn't so when we're we're weaving, we're not just weaving. Those are just not even categories to think about. Right. So they're doing history and the, if you said, "Is this historical or is this theological?" They would say, "Yes." Right. I, what do you? Is this? Right. Is this about the past or is this about the present? Yes. Those were. Those yes. are all the same things. Right. And so that's how I'm thinking of it. Is like the modern consciousness put a wedge for us between history and theology. It put a wedge between past and present mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't wedged. Right. Before that. For any of us who ever asked in reading the Bible, yeah, but what actually happened? Or did this actually happen? That's, that is, in a nutshell, the historical consciousness. That's that, the fishbowl we swim in and we can't get out of it. Right. We, and we are in it. We can't get out of it. So, I mean, you have, for example, you know, we just mentioned the Old Testament and what happened in the rise of critical biblical scholarship, what really drove it is things like archaeology and science. And the New Testament as well. You know, the New Testament does not escape this. The The more we've come to know, especially since the Dead Sea Scrolls, not to get into that topic, and we won't, but, you know, we, we've learned a lot about Judaism during the time of Jesus and Paul, before their time, and how reading the biblical stories in light of that Jewish context actually affects it, it actually leads us to ask questions of did this happen the way the Bible says it? And then on top of that, the Greco-Roman context as well. That also raises kinds of questions for us. Can I give one quick example? Mm-hmm. You know, the um there there's a, a 
a Roman inscription uh, that was dated to, I don't know, I think around the year six or seven, and the name of it doesn't matter. But um, And it talks about the birth of Caesar Augustus and about how his birth is of, of divine origin, and he is the one who has come to save his people, and he's called the Savior, and uh, his birth is to be celebrated for that reason, and he, and, and what he brings is good news for all the people. And all you need to do is sort of compare this to Luke's birth narrative, and there are similarities between that. And before, you know, that inscription was found and read, you'd never think to sort of ask, you know, at least not in the same way you wouldn't ask, well, what is it about the biblical birth story that's historical if it seems to be so close to the story of Caesar's birth? Or, you know, Moses uh, escaping the threat of death and being put into a basket to float down a river until he's picked up by somebody else. You know, we know the story of Sargon who lived, you know, before the year 2000. And there is a story very, very similar to that in, um, in the story of Sargon's birth. We would not have even thought to ask the question, what is, it looks like the birth story of Moses. It just, Boy, this looks a lot like that, right? So it's discovering those things. It's it's archaeology, really, that has unearthed these stories, and we and it forces us with the historical consciousness that we already have. It forces us to sort of ask the question: What is historical? How much of it is historical? And it's just, it's so hard to Jared to um, to avoid those questions. You almost have to turn off a part of your brain to say, I don't care. And that's actually, that's fine. I shouldn't have put it that way. I think some people just aren't interested in that. Right. And that's fine. I, I, honestly, you, you don't have to. We're not trying to make our problem your problem. Right. We're not right? trying to create problems for people. We're but. just trying to lay out what the problem actually is. This We do have a problem of history in reading the Bible, and some people are just not interested in it, and they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. not what this is about. But – to have, in, I maybe I'll put it this strongly. To have integrity with scholarship, you don't get to say I'm not interested about all that, and then speak into right. history, and then make claims make about claims well, the Bible is accurate here. Right, right. You can't do that. You can't either. ignore the scholarship and pretend that we haven't made all these advancements that does problematize, problematize yeah. the Bible. Right. Ignore all that and then still make credible claims about history right. and the Bible. I mean, things like, I don't care about all that. All I know is what the Bible says, right? And that, that's not really a caricature, right? That this is, I mean, this is yeah. a very common way of saying it. That simply bypasses the reality of the historical problem that other people really right. find inescapable. And the more one becomes in tune to that historical problem, the more you realize how that kind of a claim, it simply won't support very much for very long. Well, it won't be compelling. It won't be compelling to others and maybe not even to yourself after a while. <laughs> right. No, seriously. I mean, yeah, it just, no. you know, you watch a, a, you know, a special on, on cable TV or something about the Bible. It's like, oh my goodness gracious, I never knew any of this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, I want to, let's talk, let's shift gears a little bit because there is a, again, in scholarship, 
with the rise of all of this and this split between theology and history and what do we do, there's another problem that comes up, and it's the problem between the text and the event. Right. Because if we're saying, okay, maybe the Bible as it portrays an event isn't actually what happened. Mm-hmm. Now you have scholars who say, well, what I'm really interested in what really happened. So now the Bible is maybe one piece of evidence, but it has to be placed alongside all this other evidence. Right. And I'm not privileging the Bible. If it comes out that this is what actually happened and the Bible got it wrong, so be it. Like, I'm interested in the historical there study There are other standards by which the Bible should be judged, and that's yeah, the, right. quote, historical standard. Right. So yeah. we have those scholars who are more interested in that question. That's mm-hmm. the way they're going to go. Mm-hmm. And then there are scholars who say, well, yeah, but for the last 2,000 years, our theology, our belief systems, our tradition isn't based on what actually happened. It's mm-hmm. based on the text. Right. And that is what needs to be normative yeah. for us is the text itself. So we want to dig into the literary aspects maybe or the yeah. theological right. aspects of the text. And so there becomes this – would you I don't know, rift may be too strong of a word. Well, but a debate, that's for sure. Yeah, between yeah. text and events and which one mm-hmm. is primary and what yeah. are we basing our belief system on? Is it yeah. the event? And are we going yeah. that historical route, or is it the text? We're going this theological route. Well, I mean, the the what we're talking about is the relationship between text and event, and that is really another way of stating what we're talking about when we say the problem of history. When it comes to the Bible, is what's the relationship between what the text says and what happened? Mm-hmm. And Basically, modern scholars very much just work with the idea that they're not the same thing, mm-hmm. but what's the relationship between them? And some, you know, this is p- people really trying to work this stuff out in, in the 20th century, so like the middle of the 20th century. Um, the biblical theology movement is what it was called. But there was a little bit of a debate there between, well, what's normative, what really matters is what God did. The Acts of God. And uh, there's a Harvard scholar, G. Ernest Wright, who wrote a book, God Who Acts. And uh, this is sort of like a, you know, a go-to kind of book to sort of see what this view was. But the Old Testament, what it does, the Old Testament is interpreting God's acts, but really the heart of it is what God did. It's on the level of event. Well, how do you know what happened? Archaeology, Right. That's what comes in to sort of prove or disprove that whatever happened. That becomes your methodology. It becomes your methodology. It becomes your standard. Uh, and by the way, I love archaeology. I don't know if it can do all that for us, but I mean, that's that's what that's the idea. But then there were others, um, another German theologian, uh, there won't be a test on this, don't worry, but Gerhard von Rott, who said, yeah, I get that, but you know what? The Old Testament is really the only significant access we have to these events, right? So what actually happened? Well, we really just have the Old Testament. So so it's really on the level of the text that we sort of put all our cards, you know, put our, our, our chicks in the oven, whatever the, whatever the expression is. Chicks what? in the oven. I know, oven. that was, I was Man, deranged Freudian thing. I, <laughs> <laughs> what I do I want to say? We got eggs what? in a basket. Eggs in a basket. And then we got chicks, chicks in an oven. I knew it was related to chicken <laughs> somehow. 
Anyway, I don't know if we'll cut that out, but I hope not. No, we got to keep that in. We, we got to keep it in. We got to keep it real here. Because I'm an idiot. Because so, you like yeah. to put live baby chicks in ovens, I know, apparently. apparently. <laughs> that happened. I did get dark real quick. Of course, quick. this is why we're talking. So yeah. You know what made me think of, of that probably? Because I stepped on ants the other day on purpose, and I don't like doing that. Like little oh. tiny ants who were in my house. Yeah. And I just got sick of them, and I just stepped on them. And as soon as I did that, I said, that was just so bad. Mm. And I mean that. I actually don't like killing animals. Anyway, can we get back to the topic here? Yeah. Where were we? Yeah, oh, we yeah. Uh, Texan event. Yes, and Texan event. And Von Rott, well, the German. This is, a and- good, this is a good point because I, I want to I stop you for a second. Because okay. you said the question is the relationship between Texan event. But then you said something like normative. And I don't think it's the relationship between the text and the event because that's a very abstract scholarly endeavor. The, the, the okay. relationship between the text and the event. The question is, for those who want to still be Christian, yeah. where do we put our emphasis? Mm-hmm. Where's the value? And that's a different question than, hey, are we trying to – what's the relationship between text okay. and event is an abstract question. I think it gets weight, right? Yeah. So as a, as a researcher, as a, as a scientist, that's a question that I'm interested in and I could spend a whole career learning about and stuff. But it doesn't really matter to me. Mm-hmm. But as a Christian – it does matter. Right. And so I, th- I just want to put a little more emphasis on yeah. it. So, okay, so let me put it this way. Uh, okay. Um, as a Christian, it's the text of the Bible that is the thing that – it's not trying to figure out what happened. It's the text of the Bible. I actually support that. I, I, I think that's not a, a, by any means a ridiculous or naive notion, provided – that you also realize there is a historical problem, right? Right. And you're willing to look at that squarely and face it and say, you know, what happened on Mount Sinai or what happened in Egypt in the book of Exodus, there are historical problems with the way the Bible puts it. But for me, it's the text, it's the story, it's the theology of the biblical writer that is really important for me. It's, let's say, it's normative for me. It's, it's what drives right. me. But then you can't say, and then I simply believe this is what happened. Right. Right? Without acknowledging the fact that there is a historical problem here. Right. 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 Now, others say, again, well, I guess the text is okay, but I really just want to know what God did. Right? And they might say, well, listen, I I need to go there. The thing is that, I I mean, I may be wrong on this, but my sense is that Emphasizing the event, let's say, over the text, is probably not nearly as popular as the text over the event. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, because to to emphasize the event over the text means that you're conversant with things like archaeology, mm-hmm. and it's not as easily accessible yeah. to talk about events once you separate the biblical account of that from these other studies and, and right. research methods. The, the Bible, in other words, the text of the Bible doesn't simply give us events. Right. There's a – I don't want to use the word gap or ditch. That's, a, that's really not a constructive way of talking about it, but there is, there is some An distance. interpretive layer? There's a layer, maybe. Maybe a layer is a word. Layer, uh, layer to me is too, is too nice. <laughs> I would say there is an interpretive distance between yeah. event 
and and the way people talk, as there is any time, right? I mean, all human beings have the same problem here. This is why this the problem of history is much broader than the Bible, right? right. Like how you recount past events is part of how we interpret the past too, right? So, so in the Bible, we have the interpretation of events. And on one level, we may not be able to get much past that. Uh, maybe. I, I, maybe we can. I don't know. But it seems like you, you have to hold those things together somehow. Text is very important, but text doesn't give us event. But the event is not really accessible fully at all. And the main access we have to it is through the text, which is interpreting the event. And then there's other stuff we know from science and archaeology that throws a wrench into all this stuff because it really casts into some doubt whether something's happened at all, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the historical consciousness conversation that we have in one level or not, when we scratch our heads at places in the Bible saying, this just doesn't seem like it's something that actually happened, right? Right. And it's hard to avoid that. And as as Christians, I've, I can just say for me personally, I've definitely been divided on this. I've wrestled with these things. Because on the one hand, it's very easy for me to say something like, we'll take Jonah, for example, because that's something that always comes to mind for me. It's very easy for me to say the Bible is extremely important and matters a lot to me in the book of Jonah because it speaks to me as a story. There are some theological truths that I take from it. There are some moral truths that I take from it. There's are very important things for me. And I can kind of say that. And then somebody will say, yeah, but does it matter if Jesus was raised from the dead? Does it matter if... Uh, you know, there really was an exodus. Does it? What does that matter? And then things started getting really murky for me mm-hmm. because because of this problem, the historical problem. And I just think we're in a moment where I think a lot of Christians are trying to wrestle with what does it mean to be Christian mm-hmm. and answering that question in relationship to history. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, right. a difficult question to answer that's that a lot of people are wrestling. That's the way of putting it, right, yep. right. Yeah, I, I mean, with, with Jonah, if the historical problem is less of a problem, if we have come to a conclusion, well, it seems to be a story. Right. Right? But there are other parts of the Bible that that don't seem to be presented as a story or a parable. They seem to be talking about kings. Like and, Samuel King's. Exactly. And, yep. Or, you know, the Exodus story with all the like historical problems with it, it's still presented as some event yep. that was foundational to Israel's existence, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament too, Jesus' birth and, you know, what he did and what he said and, you know, resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all those things. Those are historical kinds of things. Right. That's how the New Testament writers talk about those things as historical events. Um, so, you know, you, you can't escape, you can't really sidestep this question in either testament, nor uh, can you steer clear of it affecting even fundamental things about just our understanding of the nature of the Christian faith or the nature of the Bible. And I guess that's sort of maybe a concluding point we can come to, Jared, that um, – this problem is not invented by the Bible for normal people. We don't sit around saying, how can we screw people up real fast? We're more trying to articulate something that is there that I'm sure many, if not most of our listeners, have experienced on some level. Yeah. And it's not going anywhere. And 
we don't have to solve it in order to be Christian. That's, to me, the big point. And you can't solve it. You can live with the tension. It's, it's part of you – know, as a matter of fact, just channeling something Trip Fuller said in a previous episode, dealing with the historical problem is part of doing theology. It reminds me of the, the problem of evil. It does? Yes. <laughs> Explain, please. Yeah, sorry. I, my synapse is always making weird connections. Like chicks we in an oven or exactly, something? <laughs> exactly. That is the problem with evil. Pete, you are the problem of evil. No. I've heard that. Um, it's, it's a problem that we can't solve. Why did good things happen to bad people and why did bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. If you had to solve that problem before you could be a Christian. Right. Or believe in God or something. Or believe right. in God. Yeah. That would be a challenge. But mm-hmm. the, the problem's still there. Mm-hmm. There's still not a great answer right. to that question. Right. It, it, this is the same thing. It's, I think we, we – again, because I was grew, grew up in a fundamentalist tradition that basically said to be a Christian is to not have doubts and to not have tension and not have question. I grew up in a system that taught me anything that was ambiguous or hard to understand or attention or anything had to be resolved mm-hmm. if you're really going to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so then they – and of course – they would also have the answer. And there were simplistic answers that you sort of just took at, at whole value. And I think that's a really, really important place to end on for us. And it's why I brought up the idea that for me, I've wrestled with, well, I like this, the literary value of the Bible, and it has a lot of theological import, and I struggle with the history of it. If you felt that, you are well within a long tradition of mm-hmm. several hundred years for the last 500 years mm-hmm. of Christians who have wrestled with it. And, and Christianity didn't just go away mm-hmm. because we couldn't solve the problem. And I, I just think I agree. I think it's a really important point to make. Yeah. And to think that the problem of history has to be solved so that you can get on with the matter of faith is a highly – it's an intellectualized version of Christianity, which is always – trust me, it's always going to get you into some sort of deep water. So if we remember, again, something we've heard on this podcast before, and I'm going back to things that Richard Rohr said a couple times that he's been on, how our experience is really something that we need to value as being a very authentic connection with God. If that is what drives us rather than clearing up all these deep intellectual issues, which people, serious people ponder for their whole lives— if, if solving those things is not the foundation of faith, but if our experience, our existential experience with the Spirit of God is, then you can say, yeah, thinking about history is part of what I do as a person of faith. It's not the thing I have to do in order, not the thing I have to solve in order to have faith. Well, it's thinking of faith as a process and a series of conversations and debates and tensions and struggles and triumphs and you know, sometimes we win those and sometimes we don't. And that's part of the process of faith rather than I said a prayer once and now the way to keep that locked away is to not have questions. Mm-hmm. And every time I have a question, that's called into question. My faith is, my salvation, whatever you want to say. So I think it's actually this re-evaluating uh, how we even think of faith. Right. And so thinking of the problem of history as an opportunity to maybe question some of these core assumptions about what faith is and how we do it might be a good next step for us. Right. So it can be a teacher. Yeah. It can be a teacher in in our faith journey. The historical problem can be not just a problem, right. but a teacher. 
Good. Well, the last thing I want to say is maybe it's worthwhile, Pete, for us to do. Are we, are we going to give an altar call now? Or yes, not? with every head bowed and every eye closed. Do you renounce the tyranny of historicity? <laughs> <clears throat> no, I think we said many times throughout this episode we didn't want to be simplistic, but we did want to simplify it. And really what that for me was was a shortcut way of us saying we don't want to name drop this 300-year history of things. So I think maybe uh, we might want to put an afterword up on Patreon for this episode. We only usually do that with guests. But I think it might be worthwhile to do, you know, another seven to ten minutes where we can just talk openly, okay. name drop, do what we're going to do, okay. just dive in a little bit. So if you're interested in that, just go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. You can check it out a little more because it can be nuanced and it can be complicated. Right. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Hope this was a helpful episode. And we hope you continue on the journey of faith, even when you bump into these problems and challenges. It's all part of the process. See you, folks. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A big shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They're the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So big thanks to Amanda Oster, Chad Gilstrap, Denise Howard, Height Baker, Joel Beebe, Laura Burns, Matthew Henry, Phil Spawn, Sarah Overly, and Wayne Bartell. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, producer Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, community champion Ashley Ward, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. I'm, I'm trying to uh, channeling language here from uh, Trip Fuller, who we had on a while back. Uh, uh, actually, let me pause there, David. Is this coming after? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Weave this together somehow, <laughs> will you, David? Oh, gosh, how do I pick that up? Um, just start the whole trip section over again. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, just go to thebibleformnormalpeople.com. Oh, sorry, Dave. Don't say that. So if you're interested in that, just go to patreon.com. What actually happened? Well, we really just have the Old Testament. So, so it's really on the level of the text that we sort of put all our cards, you know, pull our... our, our Chicks in the oven, whatever the whatever the expression is. Chicks what? in the oven. I know oven. that was I was Man, deranged Freudian thing. <laughs> <laughs> what I do I want to say? We got eggs what? in a basket. Eggs in a basket. And then we got chicks, chicks in an oven. I knew it was Ooh. related to chicken somehow. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if we'll cut that out, but I hope not. No, we got to keep that in. We, we got to keep it in. We got to keep it real here because I'm an idiot. Because so, you'd like yeah. to put live baby chicks in ovens. I know, apparently, apparently. <laughs> that happened. I did get dark real quick. Of course, quick. this is why we're talking. This is why. Yeah. You know course, what made me think of, of that? Probably because I stepped on ants the other day on purpose, and I don't like doing that. Like little oh. tiny ants who were in my house. Yeah. And I just got sick of them, and I just stepped on them. And as soon as I did that, I said that was just so bad. Mm. And I mean that. I actually don't like killing animals. Anyway, can we get back to the topic here? Yeah. Where were we? Yeah.